so the way the afternoon is structured and, and one of the um, trademarks of this conference is that we have some of our outstanding fellows, nurse colleagues, and advanced practice providers joining us at the podium to prevent clinical cases followed by expert discussion. So Jen um, is our inpatient IBD uh, advanced practice nurse. She's been doing this now for how many years? Almost eight years and uh, has completely revolutionized the way we manage our inpatients. Uh, we're really grateful to her every single day. And for our referring colleagues, um, they are too, because she does a great job making sure there's seamless communication uh, with our complex patients. So I'm going to start off with a couple of background slides, and then we're ask, uh, we've asked Jen to present one of our cases from the inpatient setting, just to get you all thinking like clinicians, and then I'll come back up and tell you about some of the advances in inpatient management. So you've heard already a bit from Steve Hanauer, um, the AGA care pathway, and I wanted to just go back to that for a moment to remind you that the way we are encourage you to think about Crohn's and ulcerative colitis now has to do with understanding prognosis of the individual patient at the time you make your initial treatment choices. Uh, in the AGA care pathway, uh, you can see that they break patients with ulcerative colitis down into the low risk for colectomy and those who have a high risk for colectomy. And the low risk patients are those with limited anatomic extent and milder endoscopic disease. And the high risk patients, those who have a higher risk of needing or getting a colectomy, are the uh, patients who are diagnosed at a younger age, have more extensive and deeper ulcerations, uh, elevated inflammatory markers, need steroids, having a history of C. diff or CMV, and being in the hospital. So when you think about these uh, prognostic factors, um, I'm giving you a hint and a little preview. You're the first audience to see any of this of the new ACGUC guidelines, which are uh, out of full disclosure under peer review right now. But this is um, the way the ACG is looking at these uh, risk factors, similar to what I just mentioned to you. And I add there the low serum albumin, which is the first thing Dr. Kersner ever taught me, actually, about using albumin as a marker for poor prognosis. And we've certainly learned that over the years, and we'll reflect back on that after Jen's case. Um, the AGA care pathway then breaks patients who uh, have these different categories into how would you manage a high-risk inpatient, and it, um, based on available evidence, divides them into those who received IV steroids, infliximab, or IV cyclosporin. And you can see that of the patients who receive IV steroids, if they respond to steroids, it provides you with a list of options there for maintenance subsequently, whether it's thiopurines based on available data, combination therapy of anti-TNF plus or minus thiopurines, so I guess combo or not, but anti-TNF, and VITO plus or minus um, an immunomodulator. And for those who failed uh, or don't respond to IV steroids, uh, you have three options based on the available literature, infliximab, cyclosporin, or surgery. I'll bring you up to date on a couple other things we've been thinking about lately. For those who respond to infliximab, the general strategy would then be to maintain with it uh, after the patient's out of the hospital um, with or without a thiopurine. Remember that the IV steroids um, are considered a concomitant immunomodulator short-term, so you get that benefit before you start the thiopurine if you're going to use it. Um, and for those who, who fail to respond to infliximab, their recommendation is colectomy. And for those in the room who have experience with cyclosporin or who have considered using it, for those who respond to cyclo, you need a cyclosparing 
maintenance strategy. Um, that can be a thiopurine, which are the older data that I'll show you um, that Russ actually published. It can be um, an anti-TNF plus or minus a thiopurine or veto plus or minus um, an immunomodulator, which may include methotrexate actually. And for those who fail cyclosporin, the common pathway here is colectomy. So that's the uh, AGA care pathway. So if you wanted to know what's currently recommended by one of our professional societies, that's what it is. So with that, I'm going to actually cede the podium to Jennifer and let her tell you about a case. So we have a patient here. He's a 25-year-old male um, diagnosed with ulcerative colitis at the age of 15 when he presented with um, bloody urgent diarrhea. He um, presented with already failing mesalamine. He required multiple admissions for IV steroids, but also required several courses of oral steroids, which he wasn't responding to at this point. Um, he also failed dual therapy with azathioprine and adalimumab, which was escalated to weekly dosing of 40 milligrams weekly. Um, also failed infliximab. He initially had some response after the second dose, but then worsened again. And then he was admitted May of last year with, again, 10 to, 20, I'm sorry, 10 to 15 bloody bowel movements and no response to oral prednisone. So typically before we'll admit a patient, we want them to fail at least high-dose prednisone, 40 milligrams for about five days. And then they also have to have negative stool studies as well. Um, a flexing on admission showed that he had moderately active inflammation. We knew from before that he did have panulcerative colitis. So um, right before admission, prior to starting cyclosporin, we were just able to do a quick flexig just to rule out CMV, just to make sure that we were treating active inflammation rather than the CMV infection. Um, he was admitted. Um, labs included a lipid panel, which we would want for cyclosporine induction, the cholesterol to be at least above 100 just to prevent seizure activity. Um, CMV PCR as well as the tissue PCR. Um, CRP, just so we have something to trend, but not all patients produce CRP. Um, GI panel, just to make sure some outside labs may not do um, the PCR for C. diff, so we typically like to do ours as well. And we also just Prior to starting cyclosporin, we want to make sure that he has a normal tensive blood pressure just because cyclosporin can cause hypertension in some patients. So we want to basically know a baseline before we start him on that medication. And also I wanted to point out he had been a failure of azathioprine in the past and before we had vetalizumab. A lot of these patients we wouldn't even offer cyclosporin to because we would typically just have azathioprine or 6-mercaptopurine to bridge to. So vetalizumab actually has given us more options for patients who we we essentially wouldn't have even offered cyclosporin to. Um, so his cyclosporin, his cholesterol was above 100. We initiated at 4 milligrams per kilogram as a continuous drip with goals, trough levels between 3 to 400. The biggest thing with um, the nursing education is not to disconnect the patients just because we check the initial trough level 48 hours after we start the IV infusion. But with some patients, we may have had kind of fluctuating levels, and then we realized that the patients were getting disconnected to take a shower, to go outside, or so they were being disconnected, so we were having all fluctuating levels. So we talked to the nurses before we even start the medication just to make sure that everyone's on the same page. Um, the um, Given the, uh, we always give it in continuity with IV steroids. Even if they didn't respond to steroids initially, we do give in conjunction. And we also give Bactrim prophylaxis for PJP just to make sure that they're not at risk for that. And that's given just once daily every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. 
So typically, before we started the cyclosporin on this patient, his CRP was 12. He did downtrend to 3 with gradual improvement of his symptoms. And typically with cyclosporin, patients should respond pretty rapidly based on their trough levels. He was a little bit of a slower um, responder, but he did improve. Um, by uh, Within about a six-day period, his CRP did start to trend down, but then he started to become symptomatic again with increase in stool and urgency. Um, CRP shot up to 34, and we rechecked a C. diff panel, and he ended up having, or GI panel, and he ended up having C. diff. So at least we had a reason for his recurrent symptoms. We initiated ha- him on oral vancomycin, and his CRP trended down from 34 down to 7 just within 24 hours of starting the vancomycin. We always start the prior authorization for the vetalizumab or most of our biosimilar uh, biologics with um, as soon as we know what we're going to bridge to just because it can take four to six weeks, sometimes two weeks if the insurance is good. Um, so we start that right away. The patient then was discharged home on twice-a-day dosing. So just an example, pending if it's a 300-milligram bag, we send them home on 300 milligrams twice daily, in addition to 40 milligrams of prednisone, the three-times-a-week Bactrim. Him, we sent home on the vancomycin for the C. diff, and then he was put back on his um, home dose of the azathioprine 150 that he came in on. He was able to successfully wean off the prednisone, which is the first medication that they wean off of when they go home on cyclosporin. And he was initiated on vetalizumab in June of last year. Um, And when he went home, his cyclosporin trough, since he was well and since he was starting on the vetalizumab, we shot a little bit lower for his trough levels, between 2 to 300. Um, His azathioprine dose was optimized from 150 to 200 milligram based on metabolite levels, and he was able to successfully wean off of cyclosporin altogether in August of 2017. We typically may leave them on the cyclosporin as the bridge for about three months. Him, he ended up weaning off um, about two months out just because he had a creatinine bump, which is with these patients, we need to make sure they're going to be compliant with the therapy because they do have to come initially for sometimes twice a week labs until we make sure they have a therapeutic oral level. Um, His most recent um, visit back in February of 2017, he's completed college. He's relocated to Chicago with his fiance. Um, He started a job in full remission, and he's due for his next repeat colonoscopy, but he's doing well, so he's been a little reluctant to come in. (laughs) Um, And prior, I just wanted to add prior um, to him coming in, it was May. He was getting close to graduating college, so he was also at a very stressful point of his life, but he's doing very well. And I'll hand it back to Dr. Rubin. Thanks, Jennifer. And for those looking at those endoscopic photos, I might even say that looks severe um, endoscopically, and there was some loss of the usual um, morphology or architecture. So that was a pretty sick colon. So obviously we're not suggesting this is what everyone should do, but that's an example of some of the complex patients that we're trying to figure out how to save their colons and do it safely and obviously work through some new options. Now I'll briefly review some of the data that we have because I'm sure in the room most of you would consider using infliximab in a patient with severe colitis in this setting. And uh, we do have some data, and, and it's the only anti-TNF that we have inpatient data for. So you can see summarized here those studies that looked at this, and I'll point out to you that a Bruce Sand study Um, was a single infusion, but dose ranging. Um, The Armuzi study were three loading doses of five milligrams per kilogram. The um, Oxenquin study was three infusions of five milligrams, but not usually the standard loading strategy. Um, The Yonero trial, which we have maybe the most data on, was a single infusion of five milligrams per kilogram. And then the LEAST trial 
um, looked at a single infusion. So if you think about all the times we consider using infliximab in these very sick hospitalized patients, the data are actually pretty weak, and they're not even how we might consider using these drugs. Um, nonetheless, you can see what I've circled there, which was the response rate um, was pretty remarkable, but that's defined in different ways, as you see by the outcome measures there. And for most of them, what we, of course, want is not just um, getting out of the hospital, still having a colon, but ultimately keeping that bowel for some period of time and follow-up. If you look at the two-year follow-up from the Yonero trial, remember that was a single infusion of infliximab followed by um, outpatient follow-up. And of those who responded, they were um, put on azathioprine as well. And in the follow-up, you see that about half the patients out to two years still had their colon. So it suggested and supported the use of infliximab in some of our patients in the hospital setting. Um, There was a subsequent trial from Europe that some in the room know called SISIF, where patients who were refractory to IV steroids after three days were randomized to infliximab or cyclosporin, and the outcomes were similar for both agents, both in efficacy in terms of um, saving the colon and getting out of the hospital, as well as in safety and adverse events. So um, why might you use one drug over another? Well, we've learned a little bit about this that I think is important. There are some predictors of the response to infliximab in UC. Um, they've been associated with a negative Pianka status, which is interesting. I don't routinely use serologies in my diagnostic approaches, but there are some data to suggest that if you're Pianka positive, you're less likely to respond to infliximab. Those in the room old enough to remember when we thought infliximab wouldn't work in UC, that might be the the prototypical UC patient, the Pianca-positive UC patient. They don't respond. Interesting. Um, In addition, in pediatrics, those who had some increased genetic loci, which has not become clinical care yet, standard of care, um, but very importantly, and the one that I focus on in my practice and think a lot about is a low albumin. Patients with low albumin not only have a poor prognosis, they're less responsive to monoclonal antibodies, and there are some reasons to think about that. This is a very nice summary of the data we know about clearance of monoclonal antibodies, and I've added arrows on the right to show you whether the um, the presence of those particular factors increases or decreases the clearance of the drug and therefore is associated with exposure for the patient. So remember the distinction between dose, which is what you give a patient, and exposure, which is what their body actually sees from a physiologic point of view. And so there are a variety of different factors that um, weigh in on how clearance of our drugs occurs. Those that are drug-related, related to how immunogenic a drug might be and also how the body reacts to it. The presence of antidrug antibodies of course, increases clearance and decreases exposure. Concomitant use of immunosuppressant or immunomodulator therapies has consistently demonstrated increased exposure and also increased drug levels when it's been studied. A high baseline TNF-alpha, not drug level, but TNF as a substrate is associated with decreased exposure of anti-TNF, presumably because you're binding it up and sinking all the drug. A low albumin leads to decreased exposure, and it may be because of severity of disease, but it also may be because of something that was described in the 1950s and previously and subsequently studied extensively, which is you may be leaking protein. So the general principle might be that it's simple as a severely uh, inflamed colon may be leaking protein and therefore giving a monoclonal antibody will also lead to increased clearance because you're leaking the drug. One way that I say it to patients is you're trying to fill a bathtub with the drain open. So that might be a reason to think about a non 
protein-based strategy for induction in severe patients. Fat people have decreased exposure maybe because fat is an immune organ and it might be secreting some TNF or other cytokines, and men have higher clearance in general. So you can imagine the fat man with a low albumin and high CRP that you just admitted in the hospital with severe colitis. All the markers are against that person responding to the use of infliximab. You could try using higher doses, and there have been some dose escalation studies that have nicely been um, described, and perhaps we'll talk about that with our colleagues later. Now, we also know that if you look at day 14 infliximab levels, for those who have acute severe, you see the levels are in general lower. Either because, remember my, my cartoon, they have a higher inflammatory burden or because perhaps they're clearing the drug too rapidly or both. So it's important to recognize that. So where's the drug going? Well, one of the places it may be going is into the stool. So this study from Amsterdam uh, and our colleagues there actually showed that the amount of infliximab you can measure in stool correlates to an elevated CRP. Another way to say that is if there's more drug found in the stool, the patient's inflammation is still higher and you're less likely to get them under control. So when we talk about using drug levels in any of our analyses, remember also that we're only looking at serum levels of drug. We're not looking at serum levels of TNF. We're not looking at tissue levels of drug or TNF, and we're not looking in the stool. And this is certainly one of the components and compartments of that pharmacodynamic um, situation. Now, in this nice study, they did a post-hoc analysis from the UC trials of infliximab. These are outpatients, okay, because the ACT-1 and ACT-2 trials for infliximab in UC did not look at inpatients. But what they demonstrated is that if you went measured a drug level at week 8, in other words, after you finished loading the drug, you could predict the likelihood of still responding to the drug by weeks 30 and 54, and I've adopted this in my practice for my high-risk patients. And I told you who the high-risk patients are already. So in the patients in whom I'm worried that they're going to lose response over time, after they get their loading doses, I actually measure a drug level, and then I can predict the likelihood that they may lose response. If the levels are low, um, I'll make an adjustment, or I'll make sure I'm adding an immunomodulator if they're not already on one. So this is one place where I do measure drug levels, high-risk patients, after loading as a way to optimize treatment. And as I mentioned to you, this is a, one of um, Russ's uh, most cited papers uh, from a few years back where he looked at um, the use of, of thiopurines after cyclosporine induction. And what you can see here is that the patients who went out of the hospital after responding to cyclosporine but didn't get transitioned to another maintenance therapy had the highest rate of relapse and subsequent colectomy. And those who were put on 6-MP or azathioprine um, did much better. So that was one of the principles that we were all taught, which is if the patient had already failed to optimize thiopurines, cyclosporine is not a good option because you didn't have another drug to use until more recently. More recently, again, our star fellow, Britt Christensen, um, did a nice analysis of the patients. We were using cyclosporine as a bridge to vetolizumab. Why veto? Well, because, number one, we couldn't give veto in the hospital at the University of Chicago. They wouldn't let us because of cost. So we couldn't use it in the hospital setting. Um, but number two, um, the safety profile of this made us more comfortable using it in combination with cyclo as a bridge therapy strategy. Um, and the third issue was um, I honestly believe that you needed a non-biological therapy to induce remission in patients who have low albumin before you can then successfully and safely continue using a biological therapy in maintenance phase. 
that was the principle of this. And we've been doing it for a while, and Jen became an expert at this. Um, and we then looked back at all of our patients and described this in the paper that we published. So this demonstrated essentially what you heard Jennifer ex- explain to you was these complex patients who get admitted and uh, who we then treat with IV steroids when they don't respond, consider cyclosporin, and use that as a bridge to vetolizumab. Now, subsequently, our colleague Dino Terabar, who's in Serbia, actually, who visits the University of Chicago every December, even when we don't know he's coming, he just shows up and wanders around with us, uh, has a white coat, and um, he looks bigger and is very intimidating. Um, But Dino learned about this, and he actually, uh, with some support from uh, pharma, did a prospective trial of severe UC patients in Serbia. And what he found in the prospective trial using exactly the strategy I just described, um, it's not a controlled trial, but nonetheless demonstrated very nicely that his patients did quite well. And he presented this as an oral at DDW this year and also presented it at ECHO. And there's the one-year follow-up he'll be presenting at the European uh, GI meeting coming up. So he's gotten a lot, of out, of, a lot of, out of this, and uh, it demonstrates more proof of this general strategy. So what else could you use? Well, what about something that's not quite as complicated as cyclo? Could we use another small molecule that's not a monoclonal antibody in the inpatient setting or in the severe patient with low albumin? We don't know the answer. So I'm just throwing the slide up on TOFA, but you'll notice at the very bottom bullet point is that there are no data yet in hospitalized patients. And I'm sure that Ray and Aileen and Jean-Fred and um, Steve and Russ are all collecting those data, and they're going to teach us that next. I'm going to end for one minute now with um, more previews of the new ACG guidelines with the caveat that this is not yet approved by peer review. So this, you can't take this to the bank yet, but I thought we'd give you some general summaries here. All patients um, who are hospitalized for UC and, frankly, for Crohn's should be tested for, to rule out C. diff, as you saw we did here. All patients should undergo a Flexig within 72 hours and preferably within 24 hours of admission to assess endoscopic severity as well as to obtain biopsies to look for CMV. All patients should be assessed for the presence of toxic megacolon, which is rare but important, obviously. Response should be monitored using stool frequency, rectal bleeding, physical exam, vital signs, and serial CRP when they make it, as you saw we did with our patient. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, opioids, and medications with anticholinergic side effects should be avoided. In patients failing to adequately respond to medical therapy by three to five days or with suspected toxicity, surgical consults should be obtained. And lastly, the choice between infliximab and cyclo should be based on provider experience with the agent, history of failure of prior failure of immunomodulator or anti-TNF, and the serum albumin. So summarizing all the things that I just taught you. Now, those are statements, and the way guidelines work is that based on available evidence, then you have recommendations, and there's just a few of these. Number one, we recommend DVT prophylaxis as compared to no prophylaxis to prevent venothromboembolic events, strong recommendation. Second, we recommend testing for C. diff infection, strong recommendation, moderate quality of evidence. Third, we recommend treatment of C. diff with vancomycin instead of metronidazole, again, for your hospitalized patients, strong rec, low quality although I would say I use Vanco for everyone now. Four, we recommend against routine use of broad-spectrum antibiotics for the treatment of severe hospitalized UC, unless they have peritoneal signs, in which case they should be going to the OR. Strong recommendation. Five, we suggest against total parenteral nutrition for bowel rest. The data for this is actually low quality, but it exists, and that recommendation is important. It's not like Crohn's. And then this is the last slide. We recommend a total of 60 milligrams per day of methylprednisolone or hydrocortisone 103 or four times per day to induce remission. Strong rec, 
but low evidence, despite um, the fact we all do it. In patients failing to adequately respond to IV corticosteroids by three to five days, we recommend medical rescue therapy with infliximab or infliximab or cyclosporin. Moderate quality of evidence, strong recommendation. In patients who achieve remission with infliximab treatment, we recommend maintenance of remission with the same agent. Strong recommendation, moderate quality of evidence. In patients who achieve remission with cyclo, we suggest maintenance of remission with thiopurines. That's a conditional recommendation with low quality of evidence. And lastly, in patients who achieve remission with cyclosporin, we suggest maintenance with vetalizumab. And it's conditional with very low quality of evidence. So with that, I hope I brought you up to speed on complex hospitalized UC. And uh, remember, we'll have a panel discussion in a little bit, and you can ask some more questions. Thank you very much.